1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events. Hey, I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to Reset, your guide to news and culture in Chicago and beyond. Tracy Bain. She's an icon in the LGBTQ and alt weekly media landscape here in Chicago. She's known for taking risks, for starting groundbreaking publications, and figuring out how to grow them and make them sustainable. She co founded Windy City Times in 1985. And most recently, as co publisher of the Chicago Reader, she steered the paper through rocky waters to be more financially viable as a nonprofit. She recently announced that she'll be handing over the reader to new leadership by the end of the year. And she joins us now as part of our weekly Chicago Innovators series to talk about the innovations that she's made over the years. So talk to me. Let's go back.
0: Why did you get into and stay in journalism for all these years? I come from a journalism family, but they were also kind of very honest with me that if I was openly gay, I probably would have a... Tough road ahead in 1984 when I graduated from Drake University. So when I returned to Chicago, I was really lucky that my mother heard that there was a gay newspaper. Which, when I left for college, I didn't even know that existed. Right. So I got a job at Gay Life Newspaper, and because I knew how to run the typesetting equipment, and uh, within a year I was managing editor. And um, because of the conflicts of interest of the owner of the publication. A lot of people in the community felt that there was a need for a new media entity. So a group of people from Gay Life started Windy City Times in September 1985. What is it about community journalism specifically that gets you? Well, I've always really felt like all news is local. You know, uh, everything from Flint water uh, to environmental crisis in Chicago bubbles up to the nation. And so I really love Chicago. I'm a native of Chicago, born and raised in the city. Yeah. And I just... I love the local stories, the good and the bad, you know, covering a community like the gay community in Chicago is is like covering a small town in the middle of a big city. So you're often in the middle of covering stories that aren't very pretty, um, either from external forces or often from internal forces of, of you know, internalized homophobia, substance abuse, violence, etc. Yeah. As we mentioned, you, you co-founded Windy City
1: Times back in 1985. You said something in an interview with ABC7 for the, um, the 35th anniversary of, of Windy City Times. It stuck with me. Let's listen to that.
0: We were there to create uh, a voice for people and to make sure the breadcrumbs of our history could be found for later generations.
1: You know, what are some of the things that you're proud that you were able to accomplish with this publication?
0: You know, I look back a lot at the covers of, of the 1980s, Windy City Times, and Gay Life, Um, And I'm really proud of the diversity of our coverage. A lot of times, um, gay media has focused on a specific gender or race of the community, but we really worked very hard to make sure, for example, in the early years of the AIDS crisis, while the mainstream media stereotyped it as a white gay male disease, we had headlines like 40% of people with AIDS are people of color. Um, And we covered the policies and the activists as well as the good stories that were happening. So I think the breadth of coverage is what I'm most proud of, Mm -hmm. and also that current generation of writers, including someone like Rebecca Mackay, have used Winnie City Times in their own research to do fiction and nonfiction projects out of that those breadcrumbs. So you were able to see that impact on the Chicago journalism world? I feel really lucky that I've lived long enough to see the impact of the work of myself and my colleagues from the nineteen eighties. A lot of people did not make it out of the nineteen eighties that we covered or that we're working for, Windy City Times. Within a few weeks of our founding, one of our uh, co-founders, Bob Bearden, got diagnosed with AIDS and he died about a year or so later. We had many writers and advertising reps and delivery people that died of AIDS and didn't get to see how important the work that they did was to this generation.
1: Let's add to that the the sexism of this
0: male dominated industry. Uh, How did that shape the work that you did? You know, I had such a clear example of it because I was this the managing editor, kind of the second in command when Windy City Times was founded. And I I was a woman then. Um, and when I left to start my own publication, Outlines, and My Name Was on Top, it took me a while to claim the title of publisher. But once I did, I could see the reaction to the community was that, oh, it's a woman's paper now. Even though I was the same person, I was covering the community the same way. Really? I loved publications that were feminist or or were for women identified people and supported them but what i was trying to do was to cover the entire community and when you see equity oftentimes people who are in the mainstream see that as biased or or too many too much coverage of trans people or or are female identifying cetera. tell um, me about it i get that here <laughs> you're always talking about race <laughs> well
1: look around <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't strike me as a risk-averse person, at least not in your professional life, Tracy. How do you overcome doubt or apprehension to be able to take these big risks?
0: You know, taking on the reader in 2018, I think still today I have a little bit of imposter syndrome that, that people tend to get. Um, I pinched myself that I was even asked and that, that we were successful in in accomplishing what we wanted to over these last four years, despite the obstacles. So I still often face that. I think the best way I overcome it it is that I have an incredible network of friends and colleagues and acquaintances that I have met over the years that have been super supportive of me, even in the most difficult times. And certainly during that first year of COVID, when I literally was tap dancing to try to raise money um, and coloring books and cookbooks and whatever we could do, uh, people were so supportive. So it gets me through the doubt when I see the support of either myself individually or the projects that I work on. How does that feel? oh my gosh, it feels so great. And when I announced this last Friday that I was kind of evolving into a new thing, as Serena Williams said, I wish I had done that first. I'm evolving. I'm not retiring. (laughs) That's that's for sure. I've got bills to pay. Um, But I definitely felt so supportive by colleagues in journalism as well as in the LGBTQ community that I've been a part of for so long. So to that end, you've led teams and publications through several transitions, right?
1: From the early days of being a new paper to merging two publications, uh, to shifts in ownership, right, which we've talked about. Uh, What
0: have you learned then about building teams? I learned the kind of people I like to work with, and I definitely, I'm a better person because of experiences I've had even into this year, but certainly in the 1990s, I had to learn a lot on the job as a boss. I went Mm -hmm. to journalism school. I didn't go to business school, so um, doing the work is what I want to do, but I forget often that it's the team as well, and making sure they feel uh, listened to. So well, d- I can Define always... that for me. What are the type of people you like to work with? Like What makes a successful team to you? Well, for example, I was on the Gay Games board in 2006, and I learned when the Gay Games ended and we still had to raise $300,000, the kind of people that were on the board for their resume and the kind of people that was gonna, were going to stick it out to the end to make sure we paid our bills. So I, I don't want resume builders in my life. I don't want people that are half there um, I want people that are passionate and and can make decisions um, quickly and uh, apologize when they make mistakes and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've made a million mistakes in my career, and I've that getting over those is sometimes difficult. But there's nothing you can do about it, and you have to move on. Yeah. Well,
1: here's one of the first things I, I learned about you in my introduction to Chicago gosh a year and nine months or so ago you you've also worked to live out intersectional values and and bring in diverse voices right at the reader you've increased the number of staff which we've heard from staffers we've had here on reset that that was a turning point for the morale um you know making it feel like more of a thriving
0: publication how'd you do that and why was that even important for you to do Well, you know, the reader had a stereotype as being a kind of a white male north side publication for years, even though it did tremendous coverage of all communities and it, and it at one point did have a female publisher in the 90s, and it it did try, right? But in terms of the racial diversity, it was really appalling. Um, And a lot of times that is just inertia, um, you know, just the force that keeps going that you don't reach out and figure out a different way. One of the first people I reached out to when I was offered the job was Karen Hawkins, She had worked for me at Windy City Times in the early 2000s, and I wanted to bring her on board to help me in that mission. And she just left a couple months ago to go to the 19th, but she and I were very much partners in that. So we went from one person of color out of 17 people to 38 percent now, and we absolutely, that's not the stopping point. Um, And we need more in leadership, and we're really trying hard to have that across different diversities because I think journalism has done better when it's it's by and for different communities. I learned that in the LGBTQ community. I've seen and watched that in the black press, the Latino press, the Asian press. Those voices are critical to not only getting the stories right, but getting more stories, like getting stories that might not be found by someone who might live in Wilmette and be be an editor of a, a daily newspaper.
1: I want to address the elephant in the room, Tracy. Making money in this industry or making papers profitable,
0: that can be an uphill battle. Yeah. When I took over, the reader was losing a million a year. It lost most of its long-term advertisers. And it really it was suffering in part because it was at, embedded in a larger organization, the Chicago Sun-Times, which itself was trying to find a way to survive. Right. So peeling it away from that um, was the first step. The second step was agreeing to get the new owners um, uh, on the path of nonprofit status. Because I knew that if the reader, which had an incredible legacy and, a, and an untapped resource of readers to support it, because it's always been free, right? Free in print, free online, free everywhere. Yeah. And so how could we shift that? And that that was to create several other limbs of revenue. So we already had one limb, which yeah. was advertising. But within advertising, our uh, sales director, uh, vice president of revenue, um, Amber Nettles, has created an incredible diversity within advertising so that we are no longer just dependent on print. Uh, in fact, print is now less than half of our print a- our advertising overall. But then we also have foundation grants. We have individual donors. We have memberships and events. So that when any one of those is weak or when a- another pandemic hits, we are not as vulnerable. When, pa- when the pandemic hit, we lost 90% of our revenue in a couple weeks. Wow. So we we did an incredible diversification of revenue quickly. But then long term, the nonprofit status is what I think is going to allow for it to be able to weather these storms. You yeah, talk more about
1: that. Why were you drawn to non-profit status and how did you approach that transition before the drama?
0: Yeah, so I I approached the owners and said, look, you guys have done a great thing in in saving the reader, but you do not want to be the Fall Guys when this is closed. It's going to close in about two years because the revenue isn't there to support the size of the reader to keep it the quality it is. We could shrink the staff, we could you know basically cut our way to try to make a break even, but then the quality of the reader and what the reader really is will go away. So if you want to not be the bad guys, let me be the bad guy and turn it into a nonprofit and find a different way. And if it doesn't succeed, then it's on us. Um so I was successful in convincing them that, and why I was convinced was that year after years for years it had been turned over to new owners at less and less value. Yeah. The last purchase had been a dollar. <laughs> um you're not gonna get uh people to keep buying it to bail it out, but rather through a nonprofit model, you might be able to find people to do it as a tax write-off, as a feel good thing. Um and and if there's a path. I think this is the path that's going to succeed.
1: You mentioned this briefly a moment ago. You were co publisher of, of The Reader during the first years of the pandemic, which
0: cut revenue streams, right? How'd you make it through that? Well, it was a, you know, it really was a team situation with the staff. So we had a union editorial staff that was willing to do three months of, um, of various pay either decreases, furloughs, et cetera, for some of the medium to more well-paid folks. Okay. And the management, we all took cuts. But that only lasted about a little over three months. Um, what really we did was pivot to do incredible projects, crazy projects. We did a coloring book within a week of the shutdown that raised $40,000, half of which went to the artists that contributed to it. Um, and then we that inspired the staff to do best of books of their own writing, cookbooks, um, we did online book groups uh, that people paid money for and got sponsorships for. So our team really pivoted. Um, and like I said, Am- Amber Nettles, Amy Matheny, our sales team, mm-hmm. they figured out a way to p- pivot as well with the rest of the crew. So on the revenue side, uh, foundations stepped up as an emergency. And um, the reader started a project called the Chicago Independent Media Alliance right before the pandemic. And we were able to create a fundraiser within a couple months of the first year of the pandemic. And raised um 160 thousand dollars for community media last year. It raised about 170 thousand. Wow, that's the a fundraiser lot. will be the first two weeks of October this year, um, and uh, about 35 of our members are going to participate.
1: So you've announced that you will be handing over leadership to fresh voices, right? That's a form of innovation too, uh, in not holding on to power and recognizing when other people can benefit, you know, from a, a project. How are you thinking about this?
0: Well, the, there's going to be a search. Uh, I think the board is going to announce uh, the company this week. Um, there already is a great management team in place. I don't think I would be even considering this without feeling like there's a soft landing for the next person. Um, and we have people that from within have been getting promoted. Say, Nicola Julian is now our managing editor. Um, we have different folks that are on track to support this person. Um, I do feel like I, I will be there as needed as an advisor. Okay. Um, I'm not... Like jumping off uh, out of Chicago or anything. <laughs> but I, but, but you're not hovering over shoulders either. I'm not hovering over shoulders. And I really also feel like my temperament after four years of this crisis is just different to be able to sustain. And so I did, wa- I wanted to do this before I was at the point where I just had to leave the next day.
1: Yeah. So what
0: are you setting your sights on next then? Well, I turned 60 in January. So it's a pretty, pretty big demarcation for me. I want to get back to writing books. And then I also want to be an advocate for the overall increase in journalism funding for community media in Chicago. So whatever role that is, as a board member or whatever it could be, yeah. I want to make sure we've been pushing for a pooled fund for journalism in Chicago for since I took over at The Reader. It's escalated over the last year, and I really feel it's a possibility that will happen next year. Your proudest moment? If that pooled fund happens, that will be <laughs> it. But certainly that the people that... Um, that most of the people that started with The Reader with me four years ago that wanted to stay are still there. We have people like Philip Montoyo and John Dunleavy and Ben Jaravsky and and Mike Sula and Deanna Isaacs that have been there for decades, and they're still there, and that we have all these new people, this next generation. Kelly Garcia just had a big win today with the Tribune quoting a story she did on a riot fest that uh, resulted in the firing of a contractor. Um, So there's still great journalism happening every day, and that's what I'm really proud of. There are changes
1: on the horizon for this media landscape, Tracy. I see a big smile on your face right now. You know, And this is happening both in the profit and non-profit spaces. And I think your work contributed to that. Thank you so much. Tracy Vame is publisher of the Chicago Reader. Thank you and good luck to you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Reset. Stay a while. Subscribe to this podcast. We drop a new episode every weekday afternoon. Here's another conversation that you might want to check out we talked with this year's Cheesemonger Invitational Top Prize winner and Chicagoan Kara Condon. A cheesemonger is someone who sells cheese. It's, it's telling the stories of, you know, cheesemakers and uh, the history of cheese. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.